You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, The Answering Machine. Spirals by David Eagleman. In the afterlife, you discover that your creator is a species of small, dim-witted, obtuse creatures. They look vaguely human, but they are smaller and more brutish. They are singularly unintelligent. They knit their brows when they try to follow what you are saying. It will help if you speak slowly, and it sometimes helps to draw pictures. At some point, their eyes will glaze over, and they will nod as though they understand you, but they will have lost the thread of the conversation entirely. A word of warning. When you wake up in the afterlife, you will be surrounded by these creatures. They will be pushing and shoving in around you, rubbernecking, howling to get a look at you, and they will all be asking you the same thing. Do you have answer? Do you have answer? Don't be frightened. These creatures are kind and innocuous. You will probably ask them what they are talking about. They will knit their brows, plumbing your words like a mysterious proverb. Then they will timidly repeat, Do you have answer? Where the heck am I? you may ask. A scribe faithfully marks down your every word for future record. Mother and daughter creatures peer out at you hopefully from observation decks. To understand where you are, it will help to have some background. At some point in the development of their society, these creatures began to wonder, Why are we here? What is the purpose of our existence? These turned out to be very difficult questions to answer. So difficult, in fact, that rather than attacking the questions directly, they decided it might be easier to build supercomputing machines devoted to finding the answers. So they invested the labor of tens of generations to engineer these. We are their machines. This seemed a clever strategy to the elders of their community. However, they overlooked one problem. To build a machine smarter than you, it has to be more complex than you. And the ability to understand the machine begins to slip away. When you wear out and stop functioning, your software is re-uploaded into their laboratory so they can probe it. This is where you awaken. And as soon as you make your first sound, they crowd around you to learn one thing. Do you have answer? They don't realize that when they dropped us into our terrarium, we didn't waste a moment. We built societies, roads, novels, catapults, telescopes, rifles, and every variety of our own machines. 
They have a hard time detecting this progress of ours, much less understanding it, because they simply can't follow the complexity. When you try to explain to them what has happened, they can't keep up with your rapid and unfathomable speech, so they set about their dim-witted nodding. It makes them sad, and the most insightful among these creatures can sometimes be seen weeping in the corners because they know their project has failed. They believe we have deduced the answer, but are too advanced to communicate it at their level. They don't guess that we have no answers for them. They don't guess that our main priority is to answer these questions for ourselves. They don't guess that we are unable and that we build machines of increasing sophistication to address our own mysteries. You try to explain this to the creatures, but it's fruitless. Not only because they don't understand you, but also because you realize how little you understand about our machines. Tuesday. My internet has suddenly stopped working, and immediately, panic sets in. To distract myself, I throw eyes wide shut into the DVD player, but after only a few minutes, I find myself continually and automatically reaching for my laptop. First, to find out Tom Cruise's age at the time of filming, then to see whether co-star Sidney Pollock was the inspiration for The Simpsons' bartender, Mo Sislak, as the resemblance is uncanny. And once again to ascertain how many calories are in the shot of creme de menthe I'm deciding whether or not to drink. In the absence of any technological superego, I down the shot, pour myself another, and watch the movie, undistracted, the old-fashioned way. Wednesday. Tucker lives around the corner from me, but as he does not like to leave the house very often, I decide to introduce him to video chatting. After getting him to install the appropriate software, within minutes I am staring into my computer screen and Tucker is staring back. The experience is unexpectedly unsettling, but I still try to convince Tucker of its virtues. If chatting on the phone is like a game of chess, I say, then video chatting is like a game of three-dimensional chess. I've always thought of chatting with you in any form as being more like a game of sorry, Tucker says. Can we stop this now? I guess so, I say. I'm not too crazy about your listening face anyway. What you're seeing is my pretending to listen face, Tucker says. And either you've got poppy seeds in your teeth or I really need to clean my computer screen. Sometimes when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. And then other times, Tucker stares back. I am not sure which of these fills me with greater angst. Thursday. 
I'm beginning to think the Gmail program that generates context-appropriate advertisements is hostile. Today Josh and I had an electronic exchange in which we tried to decide whether to meet for hot dogs or just order in a pizza. The sponsored links in the margin of the email read, Eliminate musty odors, and 10 rules for stomach fat. Is it possible to be insulted by software? The rebellion of the machines will not be like iRobot or 2001. It will be more subtle. First they will convince us we are musty and fat. Then they will snare us with ads purporting to help us. But when we show up for liposuction, the machines will suck out more than our fat. They will suck out our very souls. I've been thinking about soul-sucking machines a lot lately, perhaps in preparation to interview Dr. Noel Sharkey, a professor of artificial intelligence and robotics at the University of Sheffield. You're in London, England? No, Sheffield. Most widely recognized as the grandfatherly chief judge on Robot Wars, the BBC TV series where competing robots fight to the death. You're not the presenter, are you? These days, he is engaged in a somewhat more peaceful pastime the study of robot ethics. Robots are being used for many areas such as surgery, elder care, policing, and in the military. And with each of these, there are concerns about human rights. And one of the things I do is look at the near future of robots and how it might impinge on those rights or how it may be beneficial to mankind. But ultimately, you do think it's going to be beneficial. Like 20 years from now, you think it's more likely a robot will be changing my bedpans than chasing me down the street with lasers coming out of his eyes. <laughs> Definitely. I would say that there's not very much chance of you being chased down the street by a robot with lasers coming out of its mouth. Um, I'm 61, and I mm-hmm. would expect that robot health care would be well underway by the time I'm 80, say, or, or younger. It's already quite well advanced in Japan at the moment. Mm. There are robots that will lift and carry you help you to the bathroom, and then there are robot companions that will talk to you and perhaps cuddle you and keep you happy in that way. So it's all things designed to facilitate all people's independence in their home. Um, but as far as robots are concerned, being cared for by a robot is a kind of what you call an ethical trade-off because on the one hand, robots in your home may keep you out of a care home for longer, which is a good thing. But one thing is that carers often come into the home to wash old people or cut their hair or clean their fingernails or feed them. And if you take that away, they might not have human contact. Uh So, for instance, I am quite concerned about childcare. In in what way? Well, there are 14 companies in Japan and Korea that are currently making childcare robots. And the idea is that they will entertain your child, they play games with them, show them little quizzes. And they look at the child with camera eyes, and that projects onto a small screen on your computer so you can work away and be rest assured that the robot is looking after your kid. And, of course, that's very worrying because it's okay for 20 minutes here and there, but if you get into long-term care of children by robots, they're going to be pretty socially deprived children. That's interesting. Do do you think that people are, in general, becoming more trusting of uh, the machines around them or more skeptical? I think that people do trust machines more, but it's a generational thing. I mean, my generation were very new to computing, but my grandchildren just get straight onto the Internet. They think nothing of that. So I think that 
in terms of robots, what will happen is that I will be mistrustful of them and my generation will be, but who knows what three generations down the line will do because they'll know them much better than I will. Mm. I think people will come to trust them, but whether they come to trust the people who are running them or not, that's another matter. Well, how do you mean? For instance, at the moment in Afghanistan, Iraq, northern Pakistan, they've got like something around about 12,000 robots in operation there. Now, most of these are being used for things like bomb disposal, but they have 300 Predator and Reaper drones, and there's accidents waiting to happen there all the time because there's no artificial intelligence system that can tell the difference between a civilian and a combatant. Hmm. So the robots themselves would not be thinking, oh, let's go and massacre a lot of civilians. They're not thinking at all. But again, it's the people using the robots rather than the robots that worry me. So as progress continues to be made in the field of robotics, do you feel like humans run the risk of being replaced? I don't, I don't know about that, really. On the one hand, robots are becoming more and more autonomous, but autonomous doesn't mean it's smart or intelligent. It's just a machine that is well-programmed so that it can carry out a lot of basic functions. And I would say that the more I've worked on machines and the more I've worked on artificial intelligence, I absolutely marvel at even the simplest animals now because you realize the complexity of an animal. And when I look at the complexity and the richness of the human mind, our humor, our culture, the way we read novels, what we find amusing and interesting, and people in AI say, oh, well, we should be able to do this quite easily with a machine. But the fact is, artificial intelligence is not like intelligence, as in human intelligence. People have sentience, desires, and goals. Hmm. So I think robot technology helps us to see humanity as more special. That's my view. Noel, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. What's that machine you're bringing into the studio? Looks good, huh? It looks rusty. John, what you see in front of you right now is the John Goldstein 2.0. This is you. Well, how is that me? Basically, I took the liberty of tape recording some of our conversations. Oh, have you? And and other stuff off the radio, Mm -hmm. using editing equipment to refine some of the raw tape. And I just worked some of these buttons, and here's a little example of Jonathan Goldstein 2.0. Hi, this is Jonathan Goldstein. Howard, that's really creepy. Or I push this button. Mustache. Or I can push that button. Sandwich. This button. Uh Uh-huh. Or this button and that button in succession. Mustache. Sandwich. You see? Or this one. (laughs) It's like a little symphony of Goldstein. Howard, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Now you can take that long vacation you've always wanted while the new you takes over. Howard, that's not the new me. That's a a machine. let's, Let's say you're out of town. I can come to the studio. You would. I mean, I'm, I'm the one that's familiar with the machinery. Mm-hmm. I would sit down, press the buttons, get your salary, and you, you're vacationing. You're having a great time. You're drinking and Howard, you're sitting and drinking. This is the most ludicrous idea you've yet to come up with. Is it? It is. Compared to all the other ideas I've had. Top five. This is one that's piquing your interest, though, obviously. No, it isn't. I can see the glimmer in your eye. That's not a glimmer. There's a shine in your there eye. There's no shine in my that's eye. That's saying Howard in the studio peace of mind. Those words, they don't go together. Not like these words. Mustache, spaghetti. All right, Howard, enough, please. Just hear me out for a second here. Now, you're going to get the experience to be interviewed by Jonathan Goldstein. Oh, am I? See, it's funny because you've interviewed so many people, but you've never interviewed yourself. And I find that kind of sad because you haven't had a chance to be interviewed by 
by one of the best, may I say. Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead, John. Tell me a little story. Okay, you want a story? Okay, here's my story. You know, I was uh, working... Oh, that's interesting. ...when my friend Howard decided to come by. Uh-huh. And huh. now I'm... Mm-hmm. God. And now, uh-huh. okay, and now I'm getting no mm-hmm. work done because oh, that's I'm... That's interesting. Howard, could you stop with that thing, please? I think this is wonderful. No, it's not wonderful. This was, Howard... That was a 10 out of 10. But basically, now you can save time not having to do all those pesky radio endorsements that you celebs have to do. Howard, I don't do any endorsement. You did it. You did a foot powder one. I've never used foot powder. You don't? No. You should. Let me give you a little example. Like infomercial style. Right. This is Howard Chakowitz from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Wiretap, promoting my latest line of clothing. And it's great. And don't just take it from me. Take it from Wiretap's very own head and nick, Jonathan Goldstein. John? Hi, this is Jonathan Goldstein. Whatever Howard says is truth. Super best pants. Suede, you can put ice cream in your pants. With Jonathan Goldstein on C... That's the credit lady, Howard. You don't even know your own voice. Howard, is that not a woman? Uh, you often sound like a woman. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's feminine. You're in touch with your feminine side. Howard, it doesn't sound like me. Believe it or not, I knew this was going to happen. You know, I knew you wouldn't believe the whole thing. So I've, 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 now I've used the Goldstein... 2.0 in real-world situations mm-hmm. here, you see? Yeah. I've assembled a little montage here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, just, just to prove to you, to drive it home once and for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we go. I was applying for a job as a bank manager. As a bank manager. As a bank manager. And, you... I, and I used you as a reference. Why would you use me anyway, as a reference? Anyway, let's just hear what it sounds like when the supervisor called back to speak to Jonathan Goldstein. Hello? This is Norma Greenberg calling from First City Bank. For Mr. Jonathan Goldstein regarding Howard Chakowitz. Oh, one moment, please. Let, let me get Mr. Goldstein. He's just in the, in the toilet. Uh, uh, restroom, restroom. One moment, please. Hi, this is Jonathan Goldstein. Hello, Mr. Goldstein. Hi. We've recently received a job application from a Mr. Shakowitz, mm-hmm. and he's listed you as a reference. Mm-hmm. In fact, your name, Mr. Goldstein, came up several times on his resume as an employer. Howard is response able. It says here that he's been your account manager mm-hmm. and financial advisor for your radio show. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. He does light lifting. Mm-hmm. He's worked for you as a translator. He's mm-hmm. done security work for you. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, Howard, I feel violated. If you feel violated now, wait till you hear this. Hi, Mr. Goldstein. This is Steve calling from Video Club. Uh, Howard Chakwitz was in here earlier, and he said you'd authorized him to use your membership card to make some rentals today. Whatever. Howard want give to Howard. Okay, well, thanks for confirming that with us, Mr. Goldstein. Oh, and uh, while I've got you on the line, your copy of Yentl is a day late, so if you could go ahead and What did you rent there? I needed some things. I needed the PlayStation 3. I needed a whole mess of games. I was entertaining. Wait, but for that much stuff, you're supposed to give them a credit card, and yours was ripped up at LaserQuest. Hmm. Howard, how did you get my credit card? We're going to find that out, John, in tape clip number three, or what I like to call Jonathan Goldstein 2.0 in Howard in Charge. All right, Mr. Goldstein, just to make sure I have it correct, the additional Young Spenders charge card on your credit card account is for your son, Howard Shackwitz. And again, you do not want the prepaid card, but you are requesting the one with limitless spending. Howard is responsible. You're aware that we do usually recommend a $500 limit for teenagers. That's interesting. 
Okay, and as a security measure, may I ask you for the name of your childhood pet? Mr. Mustache. And just to confirm, may I have your existing credit card number one more time? Four, five, one, five, six, nine, two, Doesn't sound five. like you, eh, John? Howard, listen to me. Yes. You are canceling that credit card. But you signed me up for that. You, you, it was a like parent... Right. Hey, well, and what's this button over here on the side? That, that's the monologue button. If you push that button, it just goes on and on mm-hmm. and on. Right. Here, here, I'll, I can give you a little taste, though. Monday. Poor me. Poor me. Gray crying with these dogs, and it's raining. My navel. I was not breastfed. It's sad. What? And, you know, I make a uh, thought. I like Melba Toast. Howard is really great. Okay, Howard, that's enough. Wait, 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 here, here, there's more. Listen to this one. Listen to this. Saturday, I, I take Howard to the park and buy him more money. Howard! Very special. Howard eating and meatballs. I make Howard banana cake in the fridge. This cutting-edge piece of technology is better than you. Oh, now it's better than me. Yeah, for many reasons. For one reason, I can shut it off. And you know what? You don't need to put foot powder on this thing. You know, call Gregor. Let's let's put it to the test. Let's call, call up Gregor right now. Put it to the test. Okay, and then will you leave me alone? Put it to the test. Put it to the test. Put it to the test. What are you doing? Okay. Put it to the test. All right, all right. Let's uh, hang on a second. I'll get him up on the line. Hi, this is Jonathan Goldstein. It's a good thing you called because I was just thinking about you. Uh-huh. It came to me like a flash of insight. Uh-huh. What your biggest problem is? Uh-huh. You think like a coupon cutter. Uh-huh. You're not a person who has grabbed the steering wheel of life. Uh-huh. You're sitting in the passenger seat, uh-huh. but you're just glad you're not paying for gas. Uh-huh. Your fundamental problem, in a nutshell, uh-huh. is that you're a weak individual uh-huh. who can't think for himself. Uh-huh. Do you agree? Yes. I feel like we just had a breakthrough moment. Do you feel like we did? Uh-huh. I feel like for the first time, you are taking steps toward being your own man. Uh-huh. Johnny, did you have seltzer water instead of regular water for lunch? Because uh-huh. you're sounding much more vital than I remember you. Uh-huh. Johnny, listen, I got to go. I got a work call coming in. Uh-huh. But one, Oh, there is one more thing. I told my herpetologist friend he can stay at your place with the snakes. Uh-huh. All right, good talk. I'll talk to you later. The guy totally thought it was you. No, Howard, he wasn't paying attention. Gregor doesn't pay attention. All right, John, who would be the best judge of who you I are? I would think I am. I, I'm the best judge. Well, we're not going to call you up because you already know that it's you, and you're just going to be talking to yourself. We've seen that before, called a monologue, and we try to avoid it. We're going to call your mother. No, we are not. We are going to call your mother. No, And that'll no. settle this issue once Howard, and for all. I don't want to call my mother right John, now. John, there's a challenge on the table. I'm rising to meet it, and you are as well. We're calling your mother right now. And you know what? What would be so bad if you called your mother once in a while? I call my mother plenty, Howard. Mm-hmm. That's not what I hear. What are, what are you talking about? What do you hear? We're going to call her right now. That's, I'm, I'm not even listening. Okay, We're going to call her right, right now. Well, I'll dial her up. But if this thing freaks her out... I'll throw it out the window. Therein lies my confidence in the Jonathan Goldstein 2.0 soundboard machine. Truth. Melba toast. <laughs> Please stop doing that. Hello? Who's there? Hello, my mother. Johnny? What's the matter? No thing matters, my mother. So? I like Melba Toast. Yeah, so what else? I like 
mustache. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's nice to hear from you. Howard, treat me a good friend. Oh, you want to talk to Howard? He just left. He stayed for dinner, and then he ate and ran. Uh, uh, uh. Buzz, who put socks in a microwave? Where did you learn well, that? Uh, Goodbye. Well, what was all that about? What was what about? You had dinner at my mother's house. I, um... Today? I know I was there last week. I was... It's... Howard, how often do you eat at my mother's house? Anyway, the, the, the point is the gold scene 2.0 passed. My mother was distracted. Gregor doesn't know he's too busy to listen to me. You, my mother doesn't even know who I am. I find it kind of sad. Oh, you, oh, you do? Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe you need to spend some time with the machine to learn how to be a better you. Okay, Howard, I got to get back to work, all right? I have no more time for this. Just let, let yourself out. I'll see, I'll see you later. Real mature. Real nice Jonathan Goldstein 1.0. Or should I say Jonathan Goldstein 0.0? <laughs> well, you're still here. How you doing? What did you think of that? Jonathan Goldstein, best friend together, loves you. Yes, exactly. Howard, a good friend, response, able you always understand me. You and me? Right. Ice cream in your pants. Well, you can have ice cream too, but I might short your circuits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get some ice cream. Howard, so smart. Thank you. That's really encouraging. Howard is really great. On Wiretap Today, you heard Spirals, a short story by David Eagleman from his book, Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. It was read by Jane Lewis. You also heard Dr. Noel Sharkey, Howard Chakowitz, Eileen Ansel, Sasha Dyke, Sarah Steinberg, Gregor Ehrlich, Dina Goldstein, and Carolyn Warren. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, with Mira Bertwintonic and Crystal Duhame. Subscribe to the podcast through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. You know, Johnny, I'm really glad we talked. Oh, and by the way, I set some bees loose in your house. (laughs) I gotta go. (laughs) Cue the wiretap blooper reel with every ring of your phone.